スロットンシュはい。
that's pretty cool. So I'm, you know, I am just a tiny bit jealous right now. Well done. Oh, do you not have that one? I do not. I have the uh, oh. the full Sega Saturn magazine set. Right. Not invested in the um, in the official Sega magazine that came before it. Yeah, and it covers the early year of Saturn. You know, because it's like by the time you opened up issue one of OSSM, you're already into what? Uh, yes. Christmas of yeah. what? Ninety six. So it was like a year passed and a bunch of stuff happened and you're just like, okay, what happened? You know, Um, I've read it online. I've read it digital, you know, but it's just not the same. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. like how true I get, you know, I've, I've definitely tried reading magazines in digital format via eBooks or via tablets and whatnot, but it's just nothing's the same as cracking open a, a physical magazine and just being able to take it one paragraph at a time or, you know, put a bookmark in and just pick it up later. It's just, it's just different, you know? And then you've got the ritual of reading a games magazine, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's different, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah, so I am very excited about that. Yeah. And, uh, and again, it's like, you know, it's one of those things where if you see it, <laughs> you're just like, I have to get this now. <laughs> Some yep. if I don't and I wait on this, somebody else is going to get it. You know. Yep. Um, so no regrets there. <laughs> Excellent. I know that uh, in the past few weeks we also did uh, PRGE, and you were out, and so was Ben, and so was uh, Pat. And I just, you know, I I know it's been probably talked about on the Shiro show a lot and what have you. So I just want to know, you know, what's maybe your sort of best takeaway or, or, or favorite memory from the show or anything that really kind of stood out? Why, why was the experience, you know, special to you? I mean, the experience was special because I got to meet, you know, some of my best friends. I got to meet and work with Ben and Pat and Kay. Uh, and we worked together as a team. Um, even Adam Korolek was there and he's a really nice guy. I got to meet him and, and get to know him a little better. Um, so yeah, like, and, and Seven Shades, a member of our community, a developer, you know, got to meet and talk to him. So really the people was the best part of PRGE because, yeah, there was a lot of stress. There was a lot of chaos, a lot of uh, things that uh, don't necessarily go to plan that you have to work around. But the people is what makes it worth it, you know. And uh, and so, yeah, as amazing as the arcade looked, which I didn't really get to partake in or enjoy, um, and as amazing as many of the other exhibits and the vendor show floor and stuff like that was, I think my biggest takeaway was just, you know, being around those people for close to three days and just uh, having fun with them, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, and also, you know, spending time talking about and playing Saturn and, and helping other people play Saturn was really phenomenal. So, yeah. Oh, amazing. I'll just give a really brief update. Um, I've actually, in terms of Saturn gaming, I've been on a bit of a fighting game renaissance. So, mm. I started with Virtua Fighter, played through that, you know, spent a good amount of time with that, and then spent a, an equally good amount of time with Virtua Fighter Remix. Um, so that was kind of, you know, neat. And then I thought, oh, let's just keep this going. So then I jumped to um, Fighting Vipers, really, really enjoyed that, had a great time with it, and then moved on to Fighters Megamix, uh, you know, which is sort of a silly, goofy, and yet still interesting, fun, and immensely playable game. And I kind of liken it to sort of like a proto Smash Bros sort of game. Right. It, that kind of a vibe to it. And so next up on the on the playlist is Last Bronx. So wonderful. It's been a, sort of a neat little sort of journey through the um, Sega, uh, you know, arcade conversion fighting games uh, that are available on the Saturn. So that's been what's been spinning spinning in in my Saturn lately. 
that's awesome. What what would you say is your favorite out of all of those that you've played so far? You know, so wow. I mean, recent impression only. Like what? Just from okay. So just from this playthrough, yeah, I actually came away most impressed by believe it or not, fighting vipers. It's a great underrated game, isn't it? It is. And I think that was the thing. Like I think back in the day, and I think this will lead nicely into our topic today, but I think back in the day, I was caught up in the Virtua Fighter hype. So there was mm-hmm. several components to that. Number one, there's that sort of myth that in Japan, it was just the greatest fighting game ever. It had the largest following that there were just like, you know, complete masters that would play this game. And you had to learn every, you know, nuance and this and that to, to really get the most out of the game. So there was that. And then the second sort of bit to that was that Virtua Fighter was always the headliner. It always headlined the latest Sega arcade boards. It always had the latest technology behind it and so on and so forth. And Fighting Vipers didn't even get as big of a push uh, over here in the West as the Virtua Fighter games did. You know, Virtua Fighter 2 was part of the the uh, Christmas 95 Big 3. So it had, you know, the high resolution, 60 frames per second. It got a lot of attention for those reasons. It was also later packed into the three free promotion that Sega had. So Virtua Fighter really headlined a lot here too, but Fighting Vipers kind of didn't. And so it almost flew under the radar. And I think that's how I experienced it back in the day. And so to really sit down with it now and play it and enjoy it for what it is, it actually really surprised me. You know, I loved the fact that you can, you know, slowly and methodically sort of bust off your opponent's armor. I love the fact that the moves are kind of a little bit wacky and over the top and that you can, you know, blow opponents out of the ring and, and you know, have them break through the barriers and stuff. Like it just, it was fresh and it was fast and it was a lot easier to pick up and play than Virtua Fighter. You know, it had a, had a, had a gentler uh, learning curve and it just right. had a ton of fun with it. You know, so that was that was my surprise game for sure. Yeah, definitely. Fun fact is uh, when I started collecting long boxes again after basically doing it, you know, back in the day. So when I came back into Sega Saturn collecting, that was my first pickup. Nice was a uh, was a Fighting Vipers, and it was like an Etsy seller that like put it up like a pristine copy mm. for ten bucks. And I was like, I can't not get this, you know, like that, that's an excellent deal. Um, it was even back then, you know, when, when Saturn games were cheaper, but, but yeah, so it's, it's actually quite a, quite a great game. And I love all the characters and I, and I kind of feel like the art style of it is very much that kind of mid nineties Sega arcade art style that you would get in games like top skater, you know, yep. it's got that kind of character to it, um, which is it's a very specific point in Sega's history, you know, uh, because before that and then after that, it, it changed quite a bit. Um, but there was just a few games that kind of have that same kind of art style and ver- uh, Fighting Vipers. I keep wanting to say virtual <laughs> <laughs> Fighting Vipers is certainly one of them. Yeah. So and you've got another great one coming up with Last Bronx. Mm hmm. Um, quite underrated, great, great fighting game. Um, Last Bronx is my favorite weapons fighter on the Saturn and is I feel kind of like a precursor to like Soul Calibur, you know, mm-hmm. I feel even though completely unrelated, different <laughs> teams and everything like that. But I mean, it's like Soul Calibur was the best weapons fighter on the Dreamcast and Les Bronx was certainly, I feel like the best weapon fighter on the Saturn. Yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah, so I'm definitely uh, looking forward to to diving into Last Bronx. Um, and I don't, I mean, the I, I guess the one game, out of the fighting game 3D Sega conversions that I have not sort of played through this little renaissance I'm going through is Virtua Fighter Kids. All right. I do have a copy, of course, and I will have to fire it up. 
Um, but yeah, definitely looking forward to Last Bronx because it's going to be, I think it's going to be um, fun for me. And it's, it's interesting, you know, like, I guess these are games that I did play when they were current. Mm-hmm. And I think my expectations were maybe misplaced or, or maybe I, I didn't appreciate the depth of these games as much as I am now. Mm-hmm. Because they're just, they're certainly, to me, they are worthy standalone type experiences. Whereas back in the day, it's almost like I was looking for the next sort of gimmick or the next sort of big hit, the, you know, the next flashy something or other that would come across. And and these felt like they weren't offering anything too new. But again, now that I have the time to sort of sit down, relax and enjoy them, I'm seeing a lot of that stuff, a lot of those layers that I didn't see before. Well, I tell you what, Peter, you really need to get one of those little USB modems <laughs> for mm-hmm. for like 12. I'll send you a link, but for like 12 bucks and very little setup, you and I could be playing Virtual Fighter Remix online with our network. Sure and it's a, it's quite a fun experience. They Double Dime in the Shiro Discord community hosted a Virtual Fighter Remix tournament. And uh, mm-hmm. it was quite a quite a comeback situation with uh, Dan from New York, Retrospectors. Uh, kind of mm-hmm. uh, coming in the wild card, you know, and then he came to, back to win it. So it was kind of kind of cool. Um, but yeah, so that's awesome. I look forward to hearing uh, more of your takes on, you know, uh, Last Bronx when you get through that one. Absolutely. Um, but so, yeah, so this cast, we're going to be talking about the fifth generation of, of console gaming and kind of what led up to that and our impressions of that time in gaming history. Like, what was it like to be a fan in the fifth console generation what did it feel like at that time and then also just uh how would we personally characterize each console because each one had a very distinct personality and so you know as consumers as teenagers um you know how how did we view those consoles and kind of how how did we see them characterized so we should probably start with um what kind of led up to the fifth console generation so maybe Mm -hmm. we talk about uh sega nintendo console war yeah, and I'll maybe start us off to how I sort of perceived the sort of changing of the guard, you know, in the uh, in the console uh, generations from the fourth to the fifth. So you know the the big players in the fourth generation towards the tail end of that were Sega with their Genesis slash Mega Drive, and of course Nintendo with the Super NES. And there were other systems during that generation too, but by by sort of the end, the tail end of that, even things like the Sega CD and and the 32X were sort of kind of fading, but the Genesis remained, the, the Mega Drive Genesis remained, and the, the Super NES, of course. Um, but there were other sort of players that were starting to come and hit the market because gaming was becoming more and more lucrative, right? So as technology improved... By then, you know, say, uh, Super Nintendo and Genesis technology was quite old. Um, arcades were really pulling ahead, and uh, it was it was just time for new hardware. And so, everybody and their dog, it seems, were throwing their hat in to create um, a you know thirty two bit or higher console to sort of kick things off. Now, for the longest time, me as a gamer back then, and and th- at that point, I would have been you know sort of. 14, 15, so quite young. Um, 
it was easy at, at first to sort of ignore all the new systems for a couple of reasons. Number one, they didn't get too much press coverage in the magazines just yet. Right. Not not just yet, not at the beginning. And number two, you didn't really find them. They didn't have nearly the retail presence that Nintendo and Sega commanded at the time, right? If you walked into an average toy store, like a Toys R Us or whatever, you know, you'd have a million Sega and Nintendo products there, but you would have very little of the other stuff. You'd have to, I think as far as I remember to begin with anyways, if you wanted to experience some of those new up and coming systems, you'd have to go to some pretty specialty and in some cases, higher end stores to sort of see them and experience them. So I I guess just to begin with, it was easy for me to say, yeah, no, it's still going to be Genesis and super NES. That's, that's sort of what's out there. And that's what matters at the time. But of course, as time went on, uh, these newer consoles, these newer players started getting more and more attention and traction. And eventually, you know, Sega and Sony themselves uh, announced that they were going to be making 32 bit consoles. And so that that sort of mind share, that attention started started shifting towards the uh, towards the fifth generation. I'm curious if it was the same experience for you or was there like a watershed moment where you realized that, OK, there's a new generation of consoles coming like or was it gradual? It was, so there was, that you had this superpower in Nintendo, right? Uh, they came in and they pretty much dominated and controlled the market. And when I say controlled the market, I don't mean that as hyperbole. I like, they really controlled retailers. You know, they had everybody by the balls and they basically made the rules because they had the hot product that sold, you know? And, uh, mm-hmm. and it was like, other players were scared to even try to go up against them or they would try and they would fail, you know, and Nintendo did a lot of things, right. They'd had uh, some solid business practices that had led to continued success with the NES, you know, but of course, Sega Genesis or the Mega Drive came out in 89 and just off the bat, it was 16 bits. So from a graphic standpoint, it was much better. You know, the the performance was better, but that doesn't necessarily matter if the quality of the games aren't there. It had quite a few quality games early off, but the marketing was a little lacking, right? You know, so then of course comes in, you know, Tom Kalinske, say what you will about him, but I mean, he had a brilliant idea to pack in Sonic, which was, which was an excellent game. And what happened was they took over half of the market share, right? So all of a sudden, David fell Goliath and you had other people looking up and saying, oh, my God, they're mortal. You know, Nintendo's not unstoppable Uh, here. Another company did it. Right. So I wouldn't say it's like a power vacuum, but I would say that it's a lot like the early United States where there was like a land rush and everybody was just like you said, everybody threw their hat in the ring. Right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like what it was like. You had all these players saying, well, maybe we could, too, you know, Um, because now Nintendo does not control the board anymore. So what does that look like to a kid? Well, in 92, I would say I would be reading game magazines and it was just like you were seeing things like the Sega CD add-on for one. And then you were seeing things like the JVC XI, which was a Sega CD, but it was an all-in-one, mm-hmm. right? And you were seeing things like the Turbo Graphics, and you were seeing things like the Neo Geo CD, you know, or at least ads that it was coming, or or even the AES itself, you know? So there was a lot. You know how you're flipping through magazines and you're seeing ads as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. And some of them connect with you, and then some of them are just like, whoa, there's something crazy that I'll probably never actually see in in person. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of that, you know? And so as a kid who understood video games 
uh, as, you know, Sega and Nintendo, all of a sudden my eyes were flooded with all of this extra stuff, you know? Um, and, and that was quite overwhelming, actually. I remember talking with one of my good friends, you know, who was a little older than me, and he was talking about Turbo Graphics, you know, and how it was called PC Engine in, in Japan and stuff. It just blew my mind that there was other stuff that I just didn't even know about, you know. And I was like, oh, okay. I guess as you get older, you find out about these other things, you know. And so that early time period felt very um, yeah. like things were being shaken up. Because as a kid, I'd always just known two things, Nintendo and Sega. There was nothing else, you know, nothing else even came close to hitting my radar. But all of a sudden, my eyes were open to like all of these other things that were coming. And I like to call it like the Wild West of gaming because there weren't a lot of rules back then. And a lot of things were up in the air. The industry was kind of trying to predict where everything would fall. Yeah, I mean, okay, so I love the Wild West sort of analogy, because that's exactly how it was. There were no standards at all, really, of any kind, you know. Um, So I'm talking about things like, you know, power supplies to a console or the um, video and audio out. I mean, those were typically proprietary connections that, you know, so that's one aspect of it. You know, there were other things like, okay, so we were in that strange sort of phase where was it going to be CD media or was it going to be cartridge media? And, you know, you had a lot of both on the market. You know, there was things like, you know, a lot of consoles still only just had one control port. Um, Some had two, you know, and then there was talk of, you know, potentially some up and coming consoles with more than two. And, you know, that ended up being uh, Nintendo 64. So, so, so yeah, there was, there were, there were no sort of standards at all. And so, yeah, absolutely. It was wild west. The other thing that I would, I guess, add to that is, you know, teams that made games back then were small, were really, really small. True. I mean, there were less than 10 people that made the first Sonic, the hedgehog less Mm -hmm. than 10. And so I think the side effect to that is it just really strengthened that sentiment that, anybody could throw their hat in the ring and if you just strike it right if you just if lightning strikes you're going to hit it big and Mm. you're going to be the next big thing um and so you know if you think about the last few generations of gaming it's always been the playstation whatever the next xbox is and then nintendo and and that's pretty well it Mm -hmm. um you know if you stay away from the pc side of things but back then i mean there were all kinds of players that were trying it out and you know at the very beginning of that generation you know, we had things like the 3DO, the Atari, the um, Atari Jaguar. We had things like the the Pippin console. Right. You know, there was the there was a good call. You know, and there was a there was the the successor to the PC Engine, and the, the name escapes me now. Well, are we talking about the the Duo with the CDs? Because mm-hmm. that was another thing. Is like everybody threw their hat in the ring with with CD add-ons. You know, yes, the Atari was- Jaguar had a CD add-on. There was the Turbo CD or the PC Engine, you know, CD, the Duo. Um, The Wonder Mega, which was another all-in-one. You'd see it in magazines, but it would be like this crazy alien thing that you knew you'd probably never see in your lifetime. And like I said, the XI, uh, Sega CD. Everybody wanted to do a CD add-on. Nintendo was working on one you'd hear about. You'd read articles. Nintendo was going to have a CD add-on. So it was like uh, lots of noise, lots of uh, clutter. Mm -hmm. And again that proved to be kind of dangerous for some, you know, like the add-on space yeah. was just a gamble, you know, because it was like, if you, you could introduce an add-on, but if you didn't support it, then you had a huge, you know, money pit 
or you know, you had and a, a huge, PR problem, really. Exactly, and a PR problem, yeah, and and you know, breaking customer loyalty. Um, so there were a ton of different players. Yes, and so yes, so I remember distinctly, um, especially around the holiday time, often hitting shopping malls because they were they were just the thing back then, right? Mm-hmm. So you'd go to the mall, and if you went to any of the larger sort of big box stores that typically anchored those malls. In their video game section, you would find your Genesis and Super NES and, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But but that would be more or less it. There'd be a lot of it. And they'd typically be carrying a lot of titles for these two machines. They would not be carrying uh, the Neo Geo, for example. You know, like they were they were going to carry what was going to sell. But then you went right. to some of the smaller uh, stores in the mall. And I'm talking about places like the Radio Shacks, you know. And they would have all this extra stuff now. So you'd be walking into Radio Shack, and it's it's certainly more of a higher end electronic store than than your typical uh, big box department store was. Obviously, it was a smaller space, and the staff that were working it were typically a lot more knowledgeable than you know somebody working at at the Walmart or whatever. Obviously, right. and and these uh, these stores, at least in my experience, typically had several demo units that were available that you could you know, try and test out before you dropped money on a machine. And that's where I remember seeing for the very first time, for example, a game like Road Rash running on the 3DO. Mm. And this was before Saturn. This was before PlayStation. And I remember just being really impressed, thinking, okay, now I kind of, I'm starting to see and understand more than you would by looking at still screenshots in a magazine about how 3D is going to really kind of be the future and, and take over. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's one other component that sort of did it for me, Dave, and that is that back in the, those days, the arcade scene was still really strong. So if you wanted to see the future of gaming, because there was a massive you know, um, gap between what a home console could do versus what the latest cutting edge arcade machine oh, yeah. could do. There was just, you Absolutely. know, today there's no, there would be no difference, but but back then, you know, you were two or three or four generations ahead if you wanted to step into uh, the arcade. And, and I remember seeing Daytona USA running for the very first time on, an, you know. Oh, my goodness. And seeing fluid 60 frame per second 3D graphics coming at you and, you know, as you're driving and everything. And that just blew me away. You know, Virtua Fighter, Yes, that demonstrated to me, look, it's a fighting game. It's a two-on-two fighting game, kind of like Street right. Fighter, kind of like Mortal Kombat, but it's mm-hmm. the 3D space. But the game, like the experience of the game didn't feel too different. Right. Seeing Daytona USA in the arcades, it was like, okay, wow, this this is a whole new dimension of gaming, right? It was a quantum leap. It was, absolutely. Yeah, see, because in, in 92, I want to say, I loved Star Fox on the Super mm-hmm. Nintendo, right? Played that game to death, beat it a million times, right? And my young mind was just floored by the idea of, like, this is the future. These floating polygons, you know, uh, and, and gameplay going into the third dimension, you know? It blew my mind, um, even though it was like 12 frames per mm-hmm. second. You know, I didn't care. I, it did, I wasn't even aware of frame rates back then. Honestly, like that was not that's something that subsequently, you know, we're nerds and we we know all about this stuff. But back then it was like if the game ran a little slow, I just felt like 
my console must be working really hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just didn't uh, register with me, but it just blew my mind. And so when I saw stuff like virtual racing or virtual fighter in the arcade, I thought, okay, this is much better. You know, that these kind of experiences are moving into the arcade and they're doing it better and they're doing it faster, you know. But yeah, when you saw Daytona with the textures and the frame rate, and you didn't know what a frame rate was as a kid, but you knew that it looked amazing, like fluid motion, yep. you know. And uh, it just it was just absolutely mind boggling. Yeah, it was it was definitely like a quantum leap. It's amazing to see how much progress they made in such a short mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those developers. And then the fact that that original cabinet, Daytona USA, has stuck around, you know, in arcades, oh, you know, like to this day, like it's it's aged very well, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And I mean, like you said, it can't be understated how important the arcade was as a means of like kind of setting the tone for what was to come because nowadays really all you have are like ticket centers yep. you know like like chuck e cheese and stuff like that's not an arcade yep. you know i mean they, they have uh, plants versus zombies in yes. there and stuff yeah. like that it's not they have phone games you know it's not the same you know but back then the arcade was just the tops like you said and and i mean sega was at the top of that no contest no question i mean namco was great they were a good second you know but sega they owned the arcade they made the best games yes. you know and so, yeah, you did kind of look at the arcade and say, well, you know, it'd be great if we could bring that home. But that brings up a very good point, because as the fifth generation was on the horizon, as the fifth console generation was looming on the horizon, not only was there a lot of changes going on with the hardware, but there was also a lot of change going on with what were video games? Like, what were they supposed yeah. to be? You know, uh, some people thought that FMV was the future of video games, and they they really put all their eggs in that basket. You know, some people thought that it was 3D polygons, you know, and they were going to go real heavy on that. And then some felt like it was more like interactive media, you know. I mean, there was a lot more clutter than we even mentioned. There was the CDI, you know, Philips yep. CDI. And I do remember walking into a Sears electronics department, probably 90. So this is where my brain gets fuzzy. I don't know if it was 91 or 92, but I saw the CDI. And as funny as this might sound, it looked impressive mm -hmm. back then. <laughs> you know, I saw like Max Magician, I think it was. the, And it's like this interactive game where you click on stuff and he talks to you. And honestly, as a kid, I was really impressed. I was like, okay, well, this is not Star Fox, but this is definitely something mm -hmm. different, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's just one more, you know, uh, interactive media player was a huge thing back then. Everybody wanted to get in on that kind of set top box interactive media player space, you know, because they were trying to get adults in on video games. You know, they were trying to destigmatize video games as like this thing that was just for kids, you know, adults can, can get in on gaming too. And what, what does that look like? What does that mean? So yeah, there was a lot of different takes, I guess, a lot of disagreement on what video games should be. And so that's another reason why it was kind of the wild west because Nowadays, we have much clearer genre standards, you know, but back then it was just, you know, people were just trying everything. Yep. Oh, yeah, no, it, absolutely. And I recall specifically like FMV. So obviously there were a ton of FMV games on, you know, consoles like the um, Sega CD and the 3DO eventually, Saturn got them, uh, PlayStation got them at the, at the beginning there. Um, but there were also these sort of games that, uh, you know, used FMV heavily just for cutscenes or for story exposition. So I'm thinking of games like um, Total Eclipse, or games like The Horde, you know what I mean? Where the actual gameplay 
you know, were, um, you know, were graphics, but, but in between you would have story exposition that was done through FMV and, you know, back then it was just so cutting edge because that there's that's that's not something that the genesis could pull off super nintendo couldn't do that this you know this takes this takes memory there's no way this would fit on a cartridge and oh my goodness it's so cool you know and you know looking back of course a lot of it is cheese and perhaps charming cheese in a way but but back then you know like you said everybody was trying all these different things um another segment that i thought uh, that i thought was really sort of prevalent at the beginning of the generation and kind of maybe petered out a little bit as the saturn and playstation gained steam uh were pc ports so a lot of pc ports made their way over to the consoles you know i'm talking about games like mist or sim city or you know there there were a horde of others um, but games that, uh, you know, Magic Carpet is another one. So Mostly because of the CD, like yeah, uh, the right. advent of CD in gaming and stuff like that, because now these consoles had CD drives. That's they right. They fit all the data, you know, arguably. <laughs> Not a, very compressed. <laughs> Highly compressed. Well, and okay, so gaming on a PC back then was an exceptionally different experience from gaming on the console. You know, like the PC uh, would give you you know, higher resolution, more colors and all the rest of it, but it wouldn't necessarily give you the smooth sprite movements or whatever that a console would. And, you know, you'd be constrained to sitting at a desk when you're playing on your PC versus sitting right. on a couch and all that. So, so it was quite a different experience. And so I felt that as the 32 bit generation sort of got on, um, there was a lot of crossover where a lot of PC mm-hmm. games tried to make it over to, uh, to the consoles and you know I, that obviously didn't last too too long because by the end of the generation that just really wasn't happening in this to the same degree but but yeah that was another sort of memory i think of of how the generation uh rolled out i mean kids kids rule the living room right you know mm-hmm. we, we get control of the tv for cartoons and whatever you know so it's like the kids rule the living room and the the adults rule the computer you know because computers for business right <laughs> at least that's right. what it was you know <laughs> you know you, you doing the taxes and doing the spreadsheets and and word docs and stuff like that and so it was like games for the pc were targeted mostly towards adults yeah. because they were like okay figure they're already working on the computer they can waste time on this game on, you know, mist <laughs> trying to yeah, get stuck yeah, yeah. on mist and everything, you know, and then like go back to doing their taxes or whatever. Whereas with the living room, it's that's where the kids are mostly. I mean, at least that's the way that it was in my house in the nineties, you know, yep. it's like we come home from school and it was like Ninja Turtles and Darkwing Duck and SNES, you know, <laughs> or Genesis, you know, yeah, um, it was just an extension really. And you had games companies, companies like Virgin Interactive trying to basically crystal the Disney animation experience into a game, you know, mm-hmm. that it was, it really did feel like an interactive version of watching the movie Aladdin, you know, but you were playing it with a character and they spent a lot of time on like rotoscoping and stuff. And so, yeah, it was like they were doing the rotoscoping, hand drawing animation and stuff like that. And you had Nintendo of America focusing really heavily on um, pre-rendered uh, 3D yeah. graphics, you know, mm-hmm. capturing that, which, you know. Midway did to an extent with, uh, you know, Mortal Kombat doing the uh, not pre-rendered, but I guess those digitized, were just like right? di- digitized. Exactly. And then with this, it was like, oh, you know, with games like Killer Instinct or Donkey Kong Country, 
It was, uh, again, very visually stunning, you know, but it was basically faking 3D, you know, by pre-rendering it on their side and then just uh, turning that into sprites, you know. But yeah, so the look of games was so varied back then. I mean, if you look at, if you just have like a bin full of games from that time period, you're going to get just a wild assortment of Mm -hmm. content, you know, and a wild assortment of different looking things because there just wasn't that much in the way of standards you know some of those things were really impactful like uh the fact that nintendo decided to stick with a cart you know for the nintendo 64 that was kind of you know a very controversial uh decision and it led to you know companies like square which they had had a long standing relationship with moving over to a, a platform that supported CDs, you know, because they were like, well, FMV is really, really hot right now. We want to be able to tell our stories in with full cinematics, you know? And it's funny how like that has become much and much less important now a days. I mean, especially once the Dreamcast hit and you could just tell stories in the in-graphics engine, yes. you know, yeah. like, you know, when graphics got good enough to be able to just tell the story without leaving the engine, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it mattered a lot less. But, uh, but yeah, back then FMV really was, you couldn't, you couldn't underestimate how important it was. It was like, if your game doesn't have an FMV intro sequence, oh, then it's not. Geez. How true. <laughs> I'm a reviewer. I'm going to yes. give it a demerit, yes. you know, because it doesn't have an FMV opening sequence, yeah, oh, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, like, I mean, one other thing that you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, in retrospect really makes a lot of sense to me is you're right. During the Genesis Super NES era, games were were largely seen as a you know a, a child's toy like they were they weren't really a pastime that adults uh uh you know uh, got into all that often and games certainly weren't targeted at them but i felt that, that changed in the 32 bit generation well and nintendo I mean, Nintendo was instrumental in that too, though, mm-hmm. because um, when you go back to the 80s, the arcade was really popular in the 80s as well. You know, had the arcade boom and lots of adults played arcade games, you know, older teens and adults played arcade games. And I would even argue that older, I don't know, young adults, I would say, young adults to, you know, middle-aged adults might have, you know, picked up an Atari or a ColecoVision or something like that, you know, and played it as well as, you know, introduced their kids to it. You know, my dad Mm -hmm. had an Atari 2600. It was something that he picked up in his mid 20s. Right. Yeah. But then the crash happened, you know, and quite quickly, at least in America. And of course, we're, we're speaking it's completely different in Japan. Okay. Like in Japan, it's like an alternate timeline, alternate, alternate universe. But at least in, in America, in the West, you know, there was such a negative stigma on video games, you know, because, the, you know, newscasts were brutal, you know, like the, the evening news were like video games, you know, they're a waste of time and money and, oh, you know, God. they're going to, you know, ruin your kids grades or whatever. You know? So, you know, there was just this this really negative stigma towards video games. Uh, and then once yep. the crash happened, Nintendo had to bring it back as a toy. That That's what they had to do to, to slip it into the market, you know, is position it as a kid's toy and that it was an mm-hmm. interactive toy and it came with the Robbie the robot and it came with the gun and everything and it was a toy so they and they pushed that so hard so that they could get it in you know that was that was part of their ability to reintroduce video games to the market was to push them as a toy so 
that messaging subconscious or otherwise really worked. (laughs) And so for the longest time, everybody just thought of video games as a toy. And if you were an adult playing video games, you must live with your mother in the basement or something. Definitely not the norm. Yep. Absolutely. No offense to people who live with their mother in the basement, but I mean, you know, definitely like there was just this really negative stigma towards it. And of course the truth is that adults like video games too, you know, uh, as the industry would discover, you know, uh, during the fifth console generation, when they started uh, trying to make more mature content, you know, um, because the, the industry discovered where the money was coming from and where it was going. And that uh, this was uh, not just a, you know, million dollar industry, but potentially a billion dollar industry. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And so it's funny because video game, the video game landscape at the beginning of that generation was so different to what it looked like at the end of the generation. Like, you know, um, absolutely. I, I guess one other uh, aspect that now comes to mind is there were a ton of fairly small software houses and publishing outfits, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it was really during that generation that we saw the beginnings of, you know, the industry cannibalizing itself and, and sort of uh, cementing a smaller number of larger software houses Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there was, yeah, definitely a ton of software houses, uh, third parties that, you know, wanted to publish all over the place uh, that were available at the time. And so, you know, I'm sure that that helped sort of that 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 huge variety that we saw that smorgasbord of of all kinds of software, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then you still for a long while into the 32 bit generation, you had the Super NES and Genesis still pumping out some of their best titles at the time. Right. Like I'm talking about games like, you know, um, Super Mario RPG, Um, you know, that came out long after the 32-bit generation, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, started. Or games like Vector Man on the Genesis, a really cool little run and gun game that had amazing animation and all the rest of it. That came out after Saturn. So, you know, there was that bit of an overlap, I guess. And so... yeah. Yeah, so it was a it was a very very interesting time. Oh, and one other thing that I remember, and I'm not sure that this is as prominent as it was back then anymore. But um, uh, when you went to buy a console, you know, one of the aspects on the box was that it listed all of the console specs, like as if a kid buying a console right. would understand yes. the difference between a 28.8 megahertz processor versus a 33 megahertz processor. Like absolutely, you know what I mean. But it was on there because more bits. <laughs> It was, you know, it was, it was, it's just something that you did. And so it's almost like the industry was in the process of sort of um, forging its identity in a way. Mm -hmm. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So lots of stuff was getting thrown at the wall and then people were just seeing what stuck and kind of, you know, as the generation went on, they were kind of focusing and narrowing more on, you know, on that kind of stuff. So, I mean, Nintendo didn't bother, you know, touting the fact that the NES was an eight bit console. It was just like, computers were 8-bit back then, you know, Um, you had games that would run on an 8-bit computer, you know, like a traditional like 8-bit computer that either Mm -hmm. ran cassettes or cartridges, you know, on a on a monitor. And and a lot of those would get ported to the NES, you know, the NES was just an 8-bit computer, you know, that used your television to draw the images and stuff. But the funny thing is that when the Genesis came, when the Mega Drive came, that was part of the marketing. This is 16-bit, it's double the bits, you know, like, and so that was, that really is what started the idea in consumers' minds that, wow, more bits is better, you know, better, uh, um, yeah. and then it's like double that 32 bit, oh, 64 bit, you know, and 
consumers didn't know what the hell that meant. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. they, they really would eat up marketing like Atari's, you know, like do the math, you know, <laughs> this <laughs> plus this plus this equals 64 bit. No, sorry. That's not how it works at all. You know, but it's funny. Yeah. Like they finally like got over that. I think in the sixth console generation, they're just like, okay, these are like 128 bit. <laughs> like we're, we're going to stop counting. But I mean, there was one thing I wanted to say, um, and that was as I'm talking to you and we're, we're, we're talking about this, I'm starting to think about like all of the ways that gaming changed, you know, and you mentioned that you had games that were developed by teams of five to 10 people, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you go back far enough, you had teams of one person, you know, uh, you know, arcade games that were coded by one person, right? That was very common. You had games that were maybe made by two people, right? Working together. And that wasn't uncommon, even in the Saturn generation, you, you would still have ports being done by one person or two people, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> we've heard about that kind of thing with like NBA jam, you know, and they're like, here's the assets, take care of it. <laughs> you, yep. Know? Yep. you had companies like Connecticut Leather Company knowing absolutely nothing about video games, but being like, this is a hot new thing. We need to get in on video games, right? Of course, they know nothing about programming. They know nothing about video games. They know business, right? And they know how to throw money at something, right? You know, so there was much less oversight in terms of telling companies how to make games. They were just mm -hmm. like, we just need software, you know? You had companies like 3DO. I'm jumping around on the timeline, but the point is you had companies like 3DO um, saying, we have this great new platform. We really want it to do well. We need software. Give us software. Doesn't matter what it is. You know, you have an idea, we'll make a game, you know, $3 to publish. Uh, sounds like a deal, right? Um, so, yeah. so you basically had just an open door. And if you knew enough about how to make a game, you could get in. And so the industry has changed so much because back then there was just so much less oversight. And we know this as being a podcast, right? Which our leadership consists of five people, right? How hard it is to make a unanimous decision, you know, with even five people, you have to make sure everybody's on board, right? And as you grow and as you grow, you lose creative control and there's more oversight and you have to worry about pleasing everyone, right? So you had these teams where early on they were able to get very creative, take a lot of risks and make the game that they wanted to make. And then as the fifth console generation came, you had games that were, you know, developed by teams of anywhere from between five people uh, moving on to the end of the generation to like 50 people. Right. You know, PlayStation made developing easier, mm -hmm. blew up the size of development houses and the expectation for what a blockbuster game should be. So you had teams of 50 people, then you had teams of like 100 people move on into the PlayStation 2 era, you know, or even into the PlayStation 3 era. Mm -hmm. Development houses, publishing companies have blown up to massive proportions. We're talking about Hollywood proportions. And of course, the industry is worth more than Hollywood. <laughs> anyway, you know, it's a it's a multi-billion dollar industry and there is so much oversight. And I can say that having worked for a short stint at Sony Computer Entertainment, that there are so many forms, there is so much red tape, the kind of cowboy stories you hear about like Kenji Eno getting on a plane and flying his own 
copy of the game <laughs> that had like extra adult content on it or something like that and slipping that into the hands of the production factory. But that just doesn't happen. And if it does, I mean, it's like not going to happen these days. You get fired. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or you like break some kind of NDA and you get sued for millions. You know, I mean, there's just so much oversight Huge. in the game industry nowadays and so much control from these greater companies that now know video games. They know the industry, they know the product, and they know what they want and what they'll allow. And so they're not just saying, oh, here's a blank check. You guys know video games. You make it. You know, <laughs> you know that's yeah. so I mean, yeah. that's had, believe it or not, a profound effect on what kind of video games we get these days. Oh, definitely. And, you know, just to sort of add on to that, um, you know, aside from my Nintendo Switch, I don't play modern games um, on any other sort of format. And that's that is one of the primary reasons is that gaming has become over commercialized for me. And that really like we saw the seeds of that during the um, fifth generation of consoles. Because remember at the time too, like the video game rating system was fresh. It was really, really fresh, you know, um, whereas now you can't release something without having, I mean, I guess you can, but you know, you don't want to release something without having, uh, you know, a, a rating for it because, you know, retailers won't carry it potentially or, or you'll alienate your market or whatever. So, you know, there, like you said, a lot of cowboy type stuff going on, a lot of wild west um, uh, of gaming. And yes, we did get a lot of, um, crap, uh, you know, along with all the sort of greats that came out of that generation. But to me, it was a very, very art, like we're art dominated versus necessarily the business side of it. Like the, the industry was still figuring out the business side of it and, and what they should focus on and everything. And there was, you know, a million different players in the industry. And so a lot of it was very sort of creative, very, um, art focused. And that made that entire generation quite enjoyable for me. And, you know, you know, as I sort of think back, even some of the smaller uh, players from the generation had some pretty amazing titles. Like if I look at the the Jaguar, which I do not own one, but it had an amazing version of Alien versus Predator. It had possibly the best version of Tempest 2000. It had a really good version of, you know, Rayman and so on and so forth. So, so even these small guys had some really amazing titles to them. So, you know, unless you were really, really um, sold on either Sonic or Mario, you would be, I would argue, you would be relatively happy with whatever console you picked up. You know, unless it was something like a CDI or maybe a, a an Apple Pippin or whatever it was. Like, you know, even some of the sort of middle, middle tier players had some really impressive software to it. Um, and, and so, you know, it was difficult to go wrong. But that said, most consoles of the era, definitely for the um, earlier part of the generation, were expensive, like very, very expensive. I mean, the 3DO was coming up to $1,000, and that was back in you know mid-90s dollars. Um, I, I couldn't tell you what the price point of the Jaguar was. I, I just don't remember. But you know, that's what that's one thing that the outgoing Genesis and Super NES had over all these machines is they were sub one hundred dollars at that point. They were ninety nine ninety nine in retail, and so that really drove some of their sort of late sales. So yeah, it was just a lot of sort of you know let's throw things at the wall and see what sticks. But there was some really really cool art type stuff that came out of that, and that that 
gives me a, a real, real fondness for that particular generation. Yeah. And I'm curious, how do you feel about that? Like the fact that it was kind of such a, such a sort of a smorgasbord of all kinds of stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, it's without a doubt, it's my favorite console generation. And, um, you know, I'm not a completely, you know, blind fanboy to say that the games were the best in that console generation. Like, I definitely think that a lot of the gaming experiences continue to be refined in like the Dreamcast PS2 Mm -hmm. era. I really feel like once they hit that era, they really were able to nail down the gaming as an art form, telling stories, you know, having these massive worlds, you know, the, the technology had caught up to the vision. Sure. In other words, you know, they still struggled with that in the fifth console generation. And so you had really creative development studios like Team Andromeda, who were famous for, you know, working around limitations. Right. And Oftentimes that breeds uh, really special gaming experiences, you know, when you have a a set of limitations and you really have to work around that, it often forces developers to find really creative solutions, you know, and that Mm. ends up giving the game a certain visual personality. And I think that that's true with the Panzer Dragoon series, you know, they are the way they are because of the kind of challenges and obstacles that Andromeda had to deal with, with the Saturn hardware. And um, they did a phenomenal job with it. And of course, you know, I personally subjectively love a lot of the games in the fifth console generation, but I'm not going to like just say objectively that they're the best games. I just personally love that generation because of what you said, like so much variety, so much risk taking, so much possibility, I guess, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like because at that point, anything really was possible or seemed possible, you know. And um, you were right that the arcade really was informing the at-home experiences, save like FMV, you know, the folks that really wanted to push film as a game, you know, basically interactive movies and stuff like that. That was something you really didn't get in the arcade. But you did get ride on arcade systems like the Jurassic Park stuff where there was like, you know, FMV or something like that. You know, you'd you'd get that to a degree in the arcade, but it was really much more prominent at home. Whereas the arcades were looking towards the future of gaming in terms of like VR. They always really wanted to push VR. There were all these different attempts at at trying to create a working virtual reality system, whether it was something that you stand up and put your eyes in, you know, or whether it was one of those virtuality helmets or whatever. And so that always translated to the home market where, you know, like Nintendo was like, you know, this is big. The arc, they're trying to do it in the arcades. We need to find a way to do it at home. And Nintendo had been trying for a while, actually. Um, and they finally released the Virtual Boy, which also came at the dawn of the fifth generation. You know, yep. it was it was on the market at that same kind of on the tail end of the fourth console generation. But it was it was there in that weird no man's land, you know, transition period, like you were saying, like Vector Man and stuff. You had the Virtual Boy. And it was just like, you know, kids didn't really have that much disposable income. They were mostly having to ask their parents, can you get this for me? Right. And then the parents were fighting both negative stigma uh, of video games, you know, because you're hearing all this stuff on the news about how the games are going to rot my kid's brain or they're going to make them violent, (laughs) you know, but they're like, oh, but, you know, they really enjoy these video games. You know, how much do I shell out for this? Oh, they want a completely new platform. Uh, okay. Or, you know, whether it's the 32X and that to a parent seems much more economical because you're like, well, I already bought them a a Genesis and this is an add-on for that. So, I mean, at least we're staying within that platform versus 
shelling out for a completely new platform and then having to get games for it. You know, Vir- Virtual Boy was a really cool idea and I was blown away at uh, Toys R Us, you know, being able to like try it out. But at the same time, it really did give me a headache, <laughs> you know, and it was all it was just like red graphics. And as a kid, you're just like, like, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't yeah. understand like the technical limitations. You just feel like that's kind of stupid. <laughs> why? Why is it just yeah. red? You know, but yeah. yeah, so it's hard to describe. All I can say that it, there was just a lot of noise, you know. Because you had so many different gaming devices. We're not even talking about the handheld space, which included Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the Game Boy. And then Sega answered back with the Game Gear. Uh, And then, of course, you also had outliers like the Turbo Express or whatever, you know, or you had the The Atari Atari Lynx. Lynx, Exactly. You know, so I mean, if you were a kid just watching afternoon television, you were just getting bombarded with uh, commercials telling you that you weren't cool if you didn't have a Sega CD, you know, or or that you needed to get in on the 32 bit revolution with a 32 X add on, you know, and then just all this other stuff in gaming magazines, there was so much to beg your parents for, for Christmas, you know, that it just ended up being kind of fatiguing. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Yeah. So what, what did you focus on? You focus, you, you kind of maybe waited to see where the dust settled a little bit. Or you were older and you had more disposable income and you were able to make risky purchases. You know, you those few people that were able to buy an AES or maybe buy a 3DO when it launched, you know, they were pretty daring individuals. Because if you look at how much that thing costs adjusted for inflation, it's ridiculous. Oh, no question. Yeah. Can you imagine the leap of faith that you have to take? Like, but then again, Time Magazine said it was like the product of the year. Uh, So a lot of people, they really hyped it up. Well, and see, I I think that's another reason why uh, we had the variety and it wasn't quashed as quickly. um, And that being the absence of the internet. So if I'm trying to decide, should I buy a Saturn or a 3DO or a Jaguar? You know, I'm just going to look it up on the internet and see what the reviews are and, you know, see what people's thoughts are on these machines. But you couldn't do that back then. There was no internet. So, you know, what you had to rely on were, you know, magazines which were primarily written, you know, not from an industry perspective, but more from a, you know, fan review type perspective and and not much else. I mean, that's kind of what you had to go by. So if a magazine said, as an example, oh, the PlayStation is the best system ever. Well, then who are you to argue that? You know what I mean? So unless you were really hardcore into video games, and and I mean hardcore by, uh, you know, like understanding the business behind it, the companies that made the games, the, you know, the logistics behind how retail works and whatever, unless you were that deep in, you know, there was very little information that you could get yourself as a single individual consumer that would help sort of color your choice. So, you know, things like kiosks and booths and whatever inside, uh, inside stores like Radio Shack and whatever, they were very sort of informative and, and, and telling. Um, and so as the generation went on, like I remember going in and trying out uh, Road Rash on 3DO and being absolutely impressed you know, I remember seeing kiosks running Panzer Dragoon when when the Saturn was just around the corner. And I thought, wow, this is the future. Like, there's no way this was going to get beat. Um, but that tended to, I find, work against Sega in a lot of ways as soon as Sony kind of showed up. Um, because when you side-by-side compared games like Virtua Fighter to, te- to um, Toshinden 
or games like um, Daytona USA to Ridge Racer, you know, it, it looked a lot better on Sony's machine. Like it really did. And for a young kid who didn't, you know, understand that maybe, hey, like it could be that the gameplay is fantastic or that it was not really possible to bring over a cutting edge arcade game into a relatively modest uh, system, you know, in comparison that this is actually, you know, as good as it's going to get for a while. Like those connections, I don't know that they were there to be made just yet. Um, You know what I mean? So, right, right. Yeah. Like a lot of folks may have felt after they purchased a 3DO and then a few years later it fizzled out, they may have felt quite burned by the experience, you know? Oh, of course. As opposed to like, okay, wow, for two years before anybody else could, I was experiencing, you know, 3D gaming and this and that. So, right. Um, because it was expensive, like it was a lot of money. So, you know, you typically could only just buy one system and then you were really rooting hard for that system to be the one that kind of went the distance. So for folks that, you know, money was less of an issue or they, they could, they could easily afford it. I think that they have fond memories of being on that cutting edge, you know, and being able to experience like a, a new horizon of games, um, for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then of course the, the folks that took a chance on it at a great expense, you know, and then failed to see the support or, you know, saw the machine quickly eclipsed by other machines probably have less positive things to, to remember or to say about it. But yeah, you know, I'm not mentioning you specific dates, but I have a rough timeline of, uh, this generation and it all, I believe the 32 X came first. If even by a hair, you know, it was like 32 X, uh, was released. And around the same time you had the Atari Jaguar, the Atari Jaguar was released around the same time. And uh, was like you said, it was $200, I think. And then it was dropped to 150, you know, shortly after because it wasn't really doing that well. Uh But I mean, again, it was, you know, saying forget 32 bit. We've got 64 bit, (laughs) you know, and um, there was a lot of fake news. (laughs) I guess you could call it fake news and not a lot of fact checking. You know, like you didn't have, like you said, the Internet to uh to tell kids you know that's just a bunch of hooey yes you know um and then of course right on its heels was panasonic's 3do well the 3do standard was released by other sanyo and gold star of course which became lg yeah um but the first one was panasonic and this is uh i'm thinking mostly in terms of their releases in the west i'm not exactly sure when it comes to japan you know when when they were released but yeah those three were really kind of clustered around the same time. Uh, 32X as an add-on to the Genesis, yep. kind of eke out yep. more life. Because again, you have to remember, Genesis came out in 89, uh, a couple years before even the SNES came out. And then it had to do battle with SNES head-on, you know, SNES versus Genesis. SNES kind of eked ahead with stuff like the the Super FX chip, you know, SNES started pushing 3D graphics. Uh, without the use of an add-on, just yep. kind of putting a chip onto a cart. Of course, I have to say those Star Fox carts were like eighty bucks. You know, it wasn't cheap. Uh, maybe even a hundred. I don't. I don't remember, but I I do remember seeing like Target ads where it was at least eighty dollars for a Star Fox cart because of that chip that was on there. And of course, you had like Doom with the FX2 chip. You had um, Stunt Race FX. Uh, you had. I think like some kind of a dirt bike game mm-hmm. on, on the Super Nintendo. You had Killer Instinct. You know, N- Nintendo loved to also just use a lot of different 
support chips. You know, some of them wouldn't be as highly marketed as like the FX chip. The FX yep. chip was just really easy to market, you know, because it's just got a flashy name and stuff like that. But yeah, Nintendo was still using uh, support chips uh, for a lot of their games like Yoshi's Island and stuff like that. So uh, but anyway, so they were kind of extending their their console's life uh, through the use of either uh, helper chips like that. Or, uh, you know, just graphics effects like, you know, building games like Donkey Kong Country out of pre-rendered uh, 3D graphics, you know. So that's how they were kind of like yep. Yep. trying to push the plane down the runway and get it down there. To our, our, I don't know, whatever, uh, whatever kind of metaphor yep. you want. But essentially, they were just trying to buy themselves time until they could get to the next generation, which was what they were working on in, in secret, you know, Ultra 64 or whatever. Yep. It's funny that you mention all of that because I guess I guess ads were very, very sort of distinct in that generation, weren't they? Yeah. You know, like a lot of print ads and magazines, of course, you had your TV spots um, and, and again, very memorable. Like when you were talking about, you know, the Jaguar and do the math, the 64 bit. Oh, yeah. I to this day have this like this print ad, you know, etched in my brain of like this skinny little tree branch yep. and an elephant yep. behind it. And I'm sure everybody listening will remember this ad. It's like, are you smart enough to spot the elephant? You know, then then you have to be smart enough to know that 64 is better than 32. And like, so very distinct and memorable ads, definitely. So the 90s were all about attitude, right? Mm -hmm. And the 90s were all about, you know, it's like Sonic didn't have time to sit there while you went and got a drink of water or something like that. So you would tap his foot and you'd be like, what's up? What's going on? You know, get back on the controls, right? Um, it became quite a thing to insult the gamer's intelligence, you know? Yeah. And then as a gamer, it was like, wh- who, you know, what were you going to say to that? You know, you, you didn't want to be, you know, thought of as, as an idiot, you know, mm-hmm. or as uncool, mm-hmm. you know? So it was like, you know, when they would basically say, if you don't understand this, then you're stupid. <laughs> you know? Like, that's a really interesting way to sell stuff. <laughs> but then again, <laughs> that is what we had, you know? Early on like that, you also had ads like uh, the little kid saying, Mommy, what are those two consoles doing? You know, and and it was like obviously sexual innuendo, you know. Um, But again, it's like the ad is basically saying, you know, are you clever enough to get what we're saying here? You know, well, if you are, then maybe you should be playing this system, you know, because you're cool, right? You know, you uh, your brain is in the gutter, (laughs) just like ours. And you it continued with like the naked lady ad for for the Saturn, you know, yes, yes. You don't even notice the naked lady in the middle of the ad because there's so many great games, right? Yes, (laughs) exactly. Or uh, I don't know, Neo Geo, they had their share of the AES was the big dog, you know, are you a big dog, you know, or are you like one of those little wimpy dogs? And, And again, like, Sega always trying to castrate Nintendo and say like, you know, if you have our system, you know, the comparison was either like a a, a top fuel dragster or, you know, a little ice cream truck with the uh, Super Mario Kart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and to their credit, Sony was really effective when they started playing the Crash Bandicoot ads. Yes. Where the guy in the suit would go over and, you know, with his little megaphone and... Hey, Nintendo mustache man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, and so, yes, credit to them. They 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 did do a really edgy campaign that obviously worked for the time period. Um, it was literally mudslinging from all around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah, it wasn't... Yeah, it was like when Donkey Kong Country was 
coming out, it was all like, this is not on 32-bit add-ons. This is not on Sega CD and blah, blah, blah. Like, it was, you're absolutely right. Rather than highlighting the product, it was more, you know, you're stupid if you don't get this. Right. They're like sitting in the boardroom and they're like, either we're going to insult our competition or we're going to insult the viewer. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. you are not ready. You know, you are not ready for what we're about to, you know, or mm-hmm. are you ready? Okay. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, or, or it'd be like loading up a Super Nintendo into a uh, shot put, yes. you know, uh, launcher yes. and launching it and saying that it wasn't worth waiting for, yes. you know, <laughs> like, because of course, back then, you were waiting. A lot of folks were waiting for the, for the Ultra for the, 64, yeah. you know, like they didn't, they knew PlayStation was great. They could see it. You know, do you remember there was this one ad that Sony ran? If you still want a Saturn, then your head is in Uranus. I don't know if you, uh, <laughs> if you remember that one. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, Sega, they're not innocent. They, they uh, threw a PlayStation off of a 10-story building and said, you know, prepare to fly. Yes. <laughs> Plaything or yes. whatever. You know, they called it Plaything, yeah. you know. And, oh, and 3DO, you know, 3DO, uh, they called all the other consoles toys. You know, they, they threw a Sega Genesis and a Super Nintendo into a toy box, you know, just kind of like unceremoniously chucked them into a toy box and then slammed the lid and it said toys, you know? So that's that's just how you marketed consoles back then, not by the, their own merits per se. They might spend, you know, like several million dollars on an ad that hardly even shows any actual gameplay right. at all. You know, instead it's just like, here's the way that you feel when you're playing our console. You feel like your face is, uh, like your skin is melting off right. of your face. 100%. You know? Um, you know, like, um, was it Magnavox? I forget who it was. There, there's a, the, their icon was like a dude in a chair being like, kind of like thrown back, you know, from the audio. Okay. Or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was an ad like that where it was like, there was a kid on the couch, you know, and his T just the, the extremeness of the Sega CD was just pushing him back into his chair and, and, and like pinning him to the wall. And he's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> So Sony seemed to kind of inherit the edgy advertising from the fourth generation. They continued it to the fifth. Whereas Sega, when Mm. the Saturn came out here, theirs were a lot weirder. Like, I mean, the theater of the eye and, you know, the head for Saturn ad campaign, like that was less edgy and maybe more artsy. Although, I mean, I guess with the Lynn coming and beating up the rods and cones that were watching things in the theater of the eye. Right. What I mean, like it was, it was, and then Nintendo, when they came out, they were actually a lot more sub, like they were not nearly as edgy. It was like, you know, on September 30th, dinosaurs will fly. And like, it was all about like, they, they showcased their games a little bit more so and, and stayed away from that. Yeah. Nintendo classic, you know, conservative company in their nature, yeah. you know, yeah. refused to, to play that game. Yeah. They're like, we're just going to show good, wholesome, fun mm-hmm. gameplay mm-hmm. experiences. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So you could say that they're kind of, you know, innocent from that. You know, they, they really didn't really partake in that. I would, Not in the maybe, fifth oh, generation. Yeah. Not in the fifth generation. Before that, you know, when you're playing with Nintendo, you're playing with power, you know, uh, and they would they would definitely kind of push back because I, you could tell they were tired of yeah. having to deal with all these insults, you know. Um, but yeah, they didn't they never really did the same kind of like just low down and dirty mudslinging that everybody else did, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um yeah, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors back then. I have to say, like, 
there was always the uh, the difference between reality, like actual rea- gameplay reality, and what they would push in an ad, you know? Um, because yes. a, a lot of times, yeah. the fact is, they were still trying to figure out how to make these games, what these games were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Some of these gaming experiences were not fully realized, were not fully fleshed out. And uh, the truth is, they'd get these things over to marketing, and marketing would be like, how do we sell this? This is actually a really crappy game. <laughs> like, how do we sell this? Well, let's just not show a whole lot of the game. Let's just show, you know, depictions of how you might feel if you're playing this game. So, and again, without the internet or without any kind of like quick review that you can look up and stuff like that, you know, these advertisements could be very persuasive, you know, in terms of like a kid asking their parents what they want for Christmas, you know, they're like, oh, this looks amazing. Yes. On this commercial. You know, and one great example of that was the Choice Cuts demo disc that was initially packaged with Saturns. So there was no gameplay on that disc at all. It was a demo mm-hmm. disc that featured like, I don't know, 15 different titles, but none of them were playable. It was all vi- you know video mm-hmm. clips. So first of all, the video was grainy because it was compressed. It was not you know drawn using any in-game graphics engine or anything. It was just recorded uh, FMV footage. And I remember one of the games that was on this disc is Mist, and so so you think about a game like, like Mist. I mean, it's essentially a slideshow. So how do you demo that and make right. it exciting? So the way it was done on the Sega, I mean, they pumped some like hardcore, you know, guitar music, and they showed as many clips as as probably were available in the entire Mist game of any kind of animation or whatever. So that, you know, as you're watching this, you're thinking, yeah, I want Mist because it's just so <laughs> cool. And you know right. what I mean? We're, but but the product was exactly not that. <laughs> so they tried it like, we need to make this look like more action. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, and if you think about the games that were on there, I mean, even so, you know, Pebble Beach Golf Links or Blackfire games that, you know, Pebble Beach would be sort of like a relaxing kind of golf sim. You wouldn't want it to be pumping hardcore rock music in the back, but that's exactly what this demo disc was. So, right. you know, it just, yeah, I mean, again, it was a time where everyone was kind of figuring out what worked and what didn't. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was what it was. And it's it's fun to look back at, but during the time, you're right, it could, there was a lot of confusion too. I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, mist is cool. Let's get mist. Like, whereas when you eventually got it, maybe it didn't quite live up to those sort of you know heart pounding expectations you may have had. So, mm-hmm. isn't that crazy? Like when you finally get your hands on these things, when you finally see them, then word starts spreading. People start talking, mm-hmm. you know, and they say, "Saying, wow, you know, I just played a PlayStation for the first time. It looks really good." Like people said that Sony couldn't do video games, you know, but like. And the name is kind of funny sounding PlayStation, you know, I'm saying that from personal experience. Now it's, it's like word Kleenex to tissue, you know, like we, we, we say PlayStation and it's like second nature, but back then PlayStation sounded stupid. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember thinking that as a kid, I was like, it's so it's a station that you play on (laughs) Genesis sounds so cool, you know, like, uh, you know, so anyway, you saw the proof was in the pudding, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's a coin of phrase. And, and so the thing is, Sega, it's funny because they did this earlier on, you know, before Saturn and everything like that with the Genesis. They spent a good deal of money 
basically renting out a space in a in a retail store, you know, a couple a couple of these, I believe, and just putting a ton of Genesis Genesis <laughs> with <laughs> with CRTs, you know, hooked up so that people could just come and play it, you know, and experience it for themselves, right? Yeah. Let the game speak for themselves, right? And it was actually like a pretty cool campaign. It was on it was kind of like a test market thing they were doing in like this one city. I read about this in the Rise and Fall of Sega. And so it was a really cool idea and it actually was quite successful and it got them a lot of like goodwill and also got a lot of uh, word of mouth and people buying Sega Genesis, you know, buying into it because they were able to actually like play it with their own hands, you know, see it with their own eyes. Um, And then, you know, they turn around and same CEO, of course, Tom Clancy, you know, signs off on this like three, sorry, 30 million, 30 million dollar ad campaign theater of the eye <laughs> 30 million dollars adjusted for inflation you know? a ton of cash 95 to 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 now 30 million dollars i can't even imagine how much that could have done like how much you could have done from a marketing standpoint with 30 million dollars that ad was such i love it okay i love it <laughs> like i don't deny that it's so crazy so weird so cringy and that I'm glad that it exists, okay? Just from, you know, because here we are, you know, hindsight. But darn it if they couldn't have spent that $30 million much better, you know? And they literally could have just bought a bunch of Saturns and put them in kiosks across the United States in malls and stuff like that and let people play them early, you know? Um, yep. I think that would have done more to spread the word and get the excitement out that Saturn was coming and that you needed to buy one day one, you know? But instead, they mm-hmm. had this crazy, and and again, it's just such a harebrained idea. Like I cannot believe that that's how they spent their advertising dollars. And then on top of that, to launch the console early, you know, uh, oh, it's yeah. just like blunder after blunder. But yeah. So what do you think? I, I mean, like I want to talk about what each console, what sort of personality, and what sort of I guess. Um, uh, uh, attitude it wrapped itself around. But before we get there, what do you think are some of the things that, that changed by the end of the generation? Uh, well, by the end of the generation, Sega was dormant, you know, I mean, they, they, yeah, it's true. They bowed out in early 98. And so it was basically a two horse race. All the other players had bowed out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you had Microsoft on the horizon kind of getting interested in games and stuff like that. And, and, creating direct decks and stuff like that, you know, on, on PCs. Um, but you essentially had Nintendo and Sony going at it and really Sony just coming out completely dominant. Um, and, and that's why I would say by the end of the generation, you had Sony firmly established as the number one, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. going from zero to complete hero, <laughs> you know, and, uh, establishing themselves as a force to be reckoned with. And then at the same time, really changing the way that the industry would make games going forward um, in a way that couldn't be ignored by other studios, by other game companies. They right. had to follow in Sony's steps because they, they realized like, you know, Sony has touched on a formula that is proving to be massively successful and it's blowing this industry up like big time. So that's that's what I would say is that that generation, the video game industry saw seismic growth. Uh, due to Sony, developing games became much easier because uh, they made it so. You know, they knew, uh, and I've said this before, they knew that they had an uphill battle 
they knew that uh, a lot of people were kind of betting against them because they just thought that they were like a hi-fi company or, you know, a yep. Walkman company. And so it's like they they did everything they possibly could to make it a success and make uh, the development of games easy and simple, straightforward, so that they could get a lot of third parties on board, you know, yeah. uh, relatively affordable to publish for, you know, relatively uh, yeah. not not the cheapest, but definitely not the most expensive. Um, great support as a developer or publisher you weren't necessarily even concerned that it was a little more expensive because the platform was phenomenally successful. So you knew you were going to make your money back in numbers, you know, just in bulk, you know, cause you were going to ship a lot of units. So even if you paid more to publish on, on the PlayStation, you were going to make your money back versus, you know, publishing on a cheaper console, but not moving that many units, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, it just, uh, so I, I feel like it definitely turned the video game industry into a more grown up one as well. Yeah. You know, like, and, and brought adults into that living room gaming space, you know, wh- which had pretty much just been dominated by kids in the previous generation. You know, at the beginning of the generation, and as I guess the generation went on, you know, we had easily a dozen companies throwing a dozen consoles into the ring. And, you know, as the dust settled, it really kind of settled on Nintendo 64 and PlayStation with the Saturn, you know, potentially in that mix, I guess, if you're looking at it from a Japanese perspective. But um, we would never again see that kind of variety happen. You know, yes, Microsoft joined in the sixth generation, but, you know... Uh, so many of the sort of smaller players just that was it that it was make it or break it in the fifth generation sony made it and they reshaped the industry it's you know to be like you said a lot more grown up a lot more of a business focused sort of enterprise um you know and and with that standardization and 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 growth too i mean arguably growth in the video game industry was a good thing you know, but but again, the bigger you get, the more considerations and uh, and constraints you have to work with, and so that does stifle, uh, you know, artistic expression, creativity to some extent, and what have you. And I think that what happened in the fifth generation continues to shape and inform video games today. You know, the fifth right. generation was really sort of very, very formative. This is where a lot of trends either started or the seeds of which, you know, could be traced back to to generation five. So so to me it was the most consequential generation of games uh that we have had to date. Um it felt a lot like the indie game generation you know like so so mm-hmm. fifth generation games f- very feel very much indie at times you know yep. and that's kind of the equivalent that we have nowadays you know and sony really did help to bring that back you know on platforms like the late ps3 but ps4 ps5 you know they've they've they really have tried to welcome in a lot of indie developers and so that's where you get most of the creativity and the risk taking which mm-hmm. is with mm-hmm. like indie developers who are admittedly um, moving a lot less units. They're, you know, paying to publish on a, an extremely popular console, probably not making as much money, but they're, and they're smaller teams, of course, you know. And again, the games don't get nearly as much um, notoriety, as much attention as the big, you know, major games that are coming out on that console. But uh, if folks do kind of uh, dip their toe into the indie side of things, they'll find 
a lot of unique gameplay experiences that kind of harken back to the late fourth and and fifth generation of gaming, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, like stuff like Knights, where it's just like bonkers, off the wall, different. And you just wonder like how we even got that, you know? How we got it was you had these teams of creative people who were just given a blank check to do what they wanted to do is what it basically boils down to. Uh, There was that kind of trust where, you know, if they had hit a home run before, these Japanese um, companies, you know, like Sega would say, okay, this guy's a rock star. We're going to let him run free. We're going to let him do what he wants to do because he's proven himself, we believe. And, and, and wouldn't always end up being a success, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, eventually they would, uh, they would see less and less creative freedom uh, if, if they weren't able to continually, you know, hit that ball out of the park, you know. But like folks like uh, Miyamoto, I don't know. You know, he he was constantly, I, I would say, given plenty of freedom to do whatever he wanted to because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, he was just had that God status, you know. Mm-hmm. So we were able to see, you know, projects like F-Zero or Star Fox or whatever. I mean, arguably Star Fox is Argonaut, but I mean, he was able to give it that Nintendo flair and stuff like that and make sure that it actually got made, you know, um, because he had an idea. And they were like, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, you know what you're doing. So (laughs) I often wonder without him behind it, if Star Fox would have come because would they have been like, you want to make a 3D polygonal game that runs at 12 frames per second? Oh, you know, and it's going to cost like it's going to cost 80 bucks to consumers because of this extra chip we have to put on it. Like uh, if if Miyamoto hadn't been behind that, so like I don't know that Nintendo, being as conservative as they are, would have signed off on that. You know? Yeah, oh, you know? Yeah, and that's that's such a good point. Like game prices, like one thing Nintendo got away with was by ditching the CD format with the N sixty four, they were able to sell the 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 base unit at at a at a you know lower cost than initially the Saturn. And PlayStation came out. Now, Sony did, of course, go lower and they matched and this and that. And Sega did too, And although that really, really hurt them. But the downside to that is a lot of N64 carts were just expensive. I recall one Christmas uh, going into a Radio Shack or whatever it was. And there was a, you know, they were selling new copies of Mortal Kombat Trilogy for the N64. Hmm. And they had priced them at $119.99. Now, okay, I'm in Canada, so yes, you have to do the conversion down a little bit for, for yeah. US dollars back then. But let's convert it down to say a hundred US bucks. Sure. A hundred dollars in the mid nineties for one cartridge. Like that is insane. It was ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You know, and so that was sort of the downside to the to the cartridge medium. But you know, again, cartridge medium on the N64 with four control ports, you know, like a really arcade heritage right. uh, uh, offering from Sega with the Saturn. And then the sort of mainstream polygonal, you know, easy to program and easy to get into PlayStation. So all three of those sort of uh, uh, front runners of that generation had their own personalities in a way, you know? Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, though, that decision to to go cartridges was what put Nintendo behind PlayStation without a doubt, because I mean, flash memory is so cheap now, but back then it was so expensive, so expensive. Like every time you wanted to expand the the scope of a game or something like that, you had to get double the size of of chip on there. And those were really expensive to put those. And and you had a PCB 
and you had whatever extra chips they might throw on there, you know, which they did later on. Um, the N64 is like each one of those carts. Yes, you got control. Nintendo was able to keep their control. They were able to kind of like, I guess you could say arguably um, maintain control over piracy. But then, of course, not even because there were like things like the the Bung Dr. 64 or whatever. You know, people were able to rip Nintendo 64 cartridges mm-hmm. even all the way back in the day, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, rip them to zip disc or whatever, you know, um, but but essentially, yeah. And if you wanted to release a game like Resident Evil 2, which it seemed like it was such a huge game, you were nobody if you didn't have it on your your system. So it was like, we have to do this guy. We have to publish it. Capcom has set, you know, given us permission. How can we not publish this game? It's huge, right? So they have to take a bath basically <laughs> because each one of those carts it's like the one of the biggest games you know to cram in all that fmv and stuff like that yep. it must have cost them a fortune to create each one of those and i'm sure they didn't make any money on it i i wonder if they did you know because of what it cost them to, to manufacture but yeah so nintendo 64 from a hardware standpoint you know from from what it actually put on screen was pretty solid you know and um it's just incredibly limited by the the format yes. you know of cartridges definitely yes no you're right i mean it's easy to look back on all this stuff in retrospect you know and, and you you could say okay well the nintendo 64 has no sound chip and and so any music that that it, you know generates is all done through software and it will never match cd quality and that that is all true but at the time you know one of the first nintendo 64 games i ever bought myself was ocarina of time and that just blew me away despite the fact that it didn't Mm. have a cd soundtrack so you know it's like you mentioned earlier with team andromeda you know teams were able to take what they had and and work with it and and do the best that they could with it and in some cases they just they had phenomenal results you know um the game that ultimately made me buy a playstation uh back in the day was final fantasy 7 i did i thought it was tomb raider um or no, I'm sorry. Maybe it was Tomb Raider. I ended up getting Tomb Raider two as well as Final Fantasy seven, very close to each other. So maybe you're right. Mm-hmm. Maybe it, mm. actually, yeah, I think it was Tomb Raider. I needed to play Tomb Raider two. Wasn't really all that impressed with Tomb Raider two, you know, right. compared to the original. <laughs> I remember that. Um, Final yeah. Fantasy seven had so much hype around it, and I was definitely an RPG guy, so I had to play yeah. it. And so I played it, and it was it was good. It was okay. Um, and I did end up getting Final Fantasy VIII when it came out, and I was not a fan, not at all. I did not finish mm-hmm. the game. I got maybe 20 hours in. I was like, you know what? This sucks. I don't like this game. And now looking back at Final Fantasy VII, it was, it to me, and this may be a hot take, but it was okay. It was, it was okay. It wasn't that super awesome. I, I thought it kind of dragged mm. in some places and some of the animations for some of the summons, it was just like, okay, I, I guess I have time to go get a snack because they're just going to play out for so long. You know, it was just that kind of <laughs> stuff. But again, it was still very much, we're all trying to figure out what works and what doesn't in a video game. So Sony and Nintendo were by no means infallible to that. Like they made some really weird decisions I mean, the Trident controller is one of the, I, I hate it. I hate it tremendously. I hate the the analog stick on it. I don't like the fact that it's got the three prongs. I, you know, Sony's first controller, I thought was a piece of garbage too. When, by the time they moved to the DualShock, that, okay, that was better. We're, we're okay now. We've mm. got a couple of, of analog sticks on there, but 
you know, initially I wasn't a fan either. So yeah, so definitely even the, the, the big companies would be trying a lot of things that maybe initially didn't really work out so great. I mean, I don't know. What did you think? Do you think that, that Sony and Nintendo for the most part got things very, very right? I mean, obviously the market seems to have thought so because they got, you know, Sony got the most things right, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Why they came out on top. Right. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I always saw Nintendo 64 as the party console. Like the, the, mm-hmm. the one thing they really got right was they put four controller ports right on the front of the console. Yeah. Didn't have to buy some kind of extra peripheral, which was going to be another ask to your parents, you know, yep. or you're going to have to save up. You get it. You know, you had it out the box. So, you know, instead you could ask your parents instead of getting an extra peripheral, you could ask them to, for an extra controller, you know? So it's yep. very much a communal, you know, fun living room system where you could have multiple people play. And they built games around that, like Star Fox, you know, for ships that you could fly or GoldenEye or um, Mario Kart, Mario Party or party, um, yeah. Mario Kart, you know, M- many, many, many fun multiplayer experiences that would attract a lot of people at like game nights or like I would go to like a high school lock in where they had a PlayStation hooked up, but nobody was playing it because everybody wanted to play GoldenEye, you know, mm-hmm. everybody wanted to like hop in and take turns, you know, like if somebody went down, then it was someone else would hop on. And I was just like, it attracted huge crowds for, for Star Fox 64 and GoldenEye because every, because again, it had that, you know, it had, it had that kind of communal play, um, which was tougher on PlayStation with PlayStation was a really great console for like solitary gaming experiences. I, I feel, yeah, it had some, you know, multiplayer stuff going on, but for the most part, it was like a really good grindy mm-hmm. console mm-hmm. experience where you just kind of are grinding through Gran Turismo yourself and, and, and earning the different licenses and getting more cars, you know, or you're grinding through some RPG, you know, like final fantasy seven or what, whatnot. Um, I really was impressed with Final Fantasy VII. The only misgiving I had was that the characters were like really, really blocky, you know? Yeah. And we were coming from Final Fantasy VI on the SNES, which had beautiful pixel art, you know, yep. uh, to to that, you know? And I was just like, why does Cloud have like these stubby nubs for arms, you know? <laughs> um, but be that as it may, you know, they, they were quickly able to wrangle that console and push much more fidelity out of it. By like Final Fantasy IX, the characters looked much more uh you know detailed and artistic and something and i absolutely love final fantasy 9 one of my favorite final fantasy games um yeah no i i think that the playstation ended up being more like the adults console i feel like the playstation because i mean my dad was an adult and he just absolutely loved the thing took it with him everywhere you had games like medal of honor you had more adult games like uh Either they were like mature rated games um, or they were just games that were uh, of a subject matter that was going to be interesting to adults like Metal Gear Solid. And, mm-hmm. and you had stuff like with the Cold War and stuff like that. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of kids didn't even know what the Cold War was. But right. you had you had these games with, with edgy graphics, edgy characters, lots of, you know, cigarette smoking and and uh, adult themes. And, you know, and, and of course, teens dug it, you know, thought it was great. But also adults could get into it and say, OK, I don't feel silly playing Metal Gear Solid, you know, because it it seems like a very adult game, you know? And uh, yeah, so I I feel like Saturn ended up just being like this quirky, you called it an also ran, you know, um, which I think is apt, you know, as much as we love it, you know, like I'm just being realistic about it. It's the, it's not the console that you felt like you had to have back then. If you were part of the general popular general public, it was the console that either you were a diehard arcade gamer or, 
uh, and you needed to have those kind of experiences at home or you know you were really into the art of 2d pixel gaming which was totally not in vogue at that time you know yeah sadly to yeah. say you know so it was like if you knew you knew it, it, if if you really wanted saturn you sought it out and you got it or you just happen to be that kid whose parent got it because they were familiar with the sega name and then you regretted it and tried to trade it in for yeah, a playstation yeah, yeah, yeah. or an nintendo 64 because that's not what you were there for you were there for like these blockbuster uh, more mainstream games and you didn't get that on saturn arguably so you you sought out those louder consoles you know um but again like i wanted a saturn i specifically got it and i knew what i was getting myself into and i enjoyed it every bit so let me you know what okay so i just had a thought here and i'm going to kind of articulate it and okay. you tell me what you think. So I, I I love how you called the Nintendo 64 a communal gaming system, like a party night type of system. I think that's super apt. Um, and I would agree. Yeah. The PlayStation was like that sort of mainstream blockbusters, however, solitary sort of, you know, machine that was the go-to uh, for those experiences. Um, and and I'd always sort of quantified the Saturn as more of like an arcade type system where you're going to get the arcade uh, conversions to come to the home. Mm-hmm. However, of course, at the beginning of the generation, the arcades were like light years ahead of what, you know, the Genesis and the Super NES could do. But by the end of the generation, that gap wasn't nearly as big anymore. It was right. still there. But, you know, mm-hmm. suddenly the the PlayStation, the N64, and the Saturn arguably could do things that were advanced enough that, you know, you had a, a relatively similar experience than you could at the arcades. The arcades were still further ahead, but by that time they weren't as far ahead and they were starting to fade away from, right. from popularity, right? And so the Saturn, I think, would have been an amazing system at the true beginning of the fifth generation. But right. as the generation progressed, everything about the Saturn, all of its strengths and everything that it stood for was really falling out of vogue, you know? And so it's like it was the wrong system for the wrong time, if that makes sense. You know, like to me, it, you know, if if, uh, if the Nintendo 64 is, you know, a bowl of pretzels and, and the, uh, the PlayStation is your McDonald's burger, then the Saturn was like the fine dining that not everyone would really want and appreciate and or even be able to afford for that matter. And you never really got quite enough on your plate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Some of the best games were locked in Japan and never made it over. It sort of faded away along with the arcade scene. And it just kind of, it was, it was an also ran that in retrospect, when you're not constrained by the time that you're living in, it's a fantastic machine. And that's why we all love it. Mm-hmm. But it was the wrong console for the wrong time. Everything changed as the Saturn was coming out, and it suddenly looked like it just wasn't even ready for for what it needed to be. I mean, was that fair? Would you agree with any of that? Would you add to that? I mean, yeah, I would. I would definitely agree with all of that. I definitely think that we never really saw what the Saturn was fully capable of from a graphic uh-huh. standpoint. Yeah. But even having said that, I don't think that it ever would have eclipsed the way PlayStation draws graphics. Like, you know, PlayStation does a really good job. Like it's very smooth with the with the alpha transparencies, the Gorad shading and some of the lighting effects that you get on PlayStation and just the way that it draws uh, 3D polygons. It produces stuff like Gran Turismo 2, which I look at that and I say... It's hard for me to believe that that would be completely possible on the Saturn. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we've seen some amazing things from the community, from the homebrew community, you know? And, um, but, but again, I still feel like the Saturn is kind of held back by a few little bottlenecks, you know, by a few, I guess, points of contention in its design that make it difficult to say that it, it would have eclipsed PlayStation head to head, just doing 3d polygonal games, but there's no contest when it comes to 2d you know, 2D sprite or hand-drawn graphics, you know, you got stuff like um, the Island of Seven Winds yep. game, which yep. is like amazing, like hand, large hand-drawn sprites that are moving fluidly. And uh, I just, you never would have gotten anything like that on the Saturn, you know, of course we didn't, or uh, sorry, on the PlayStation. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and we didn't get it in the West anyway. So, you know, for what it's worth, but again, you know, I feel like Sega and the Saturn was really looking not at Sony, you know, when it was developed. It was looking at the players like Atari with the Jaguar yep. and That's 3DO. Fair. And those were the the consoles to beat. And did it do it? Yes, I do. Definitely. It, it beat those consoles quite handily. And it didn't really count on Sony being the absolute phenomenal success that it was. I mean, and that is guaranteed for sure. Like Sega just did not see Sony coming, or at least they did not take that threat seriously like they should have Mm -hmm. until it was way too late, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sony really did just double down on 3D. They said, you know, Sega's doing it in the arcades. It looks phenomenal. Everyone loves it. Nintendo's playing around with it, has been playing around with it, with the uh, Super FX stuff, you know, and you know, they're going to be coming out with a 3D machine. We got to go all in on 3D. Uh, 2D is old and out of vogue. Let's just, you know, go full force 3D gaming all the way and let's do it as as well as we possibly can. And let's make it easy to do. Let's make it, you know, because nobody really knows how to make a 3D game. So let's make it as easy as possible to kind of make these games in in, in this sandbox that we create, you know, for them with these development tools. And uh, we'll court a bunch of uh, third party developers and might even steal some from Sega, you know, or steal some from Nintendo, you know, Mm -hmm. which they totally did, you know. So, yeah, I mean, what can I say? I always like to take things on their own merits, you know, and just look at them for what they are. But also context is very important, you know, and if you look at the Saturn in terms of that early, you know, 94, 95, 96 that's the period at which it was most competitive and most compelling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then as you get into 97, 98, 99, it's PlayStation all the way. They ran away with it and just left everybody in their dust. And that's so true. And, you know, it, it, so it's funny because Sony was able to dial into what the gamers wanted with the 3d, at least Mm -hmm. here in the West. And that's why the Saturn, you know, I think had such a struggle with it is because their focus wasn't on, uh, what Sony was doing or what the Western gamer may have wanted at the time, they stuck to the arcade conversions and this and that. And so everything that would have worked for them splendidly at the beginning of the generation was falling out of vogue by the end of the generation. But mm-hmm. then you look at in Japan where the Saturn had a lot more success there, they right. were incredibly dialed into the gaming culture. You know, there were a lot Absolutely. of, you know, games that were based on very popular animes that were running in Japan. There were a lot of visual novels and those were really kind of dating simulator, dating simu- <laughs> you, you name it. Absolutely. Stuff, and so, yeah. so it's funny because same, same company, same, same machine, same platform, same console, very, very dialed into what they knew their market, their market needed in Japan and completely out of vogue in the North yeah. market. You know what I mean? So it's just funny how that worked out. And, um, uh, you know, but that's as much uh, on Sega themselves 
um, as it is on Sony running a brilliant, you know, business plan. And Mm -hmm. I often wonder, like, Sony has become so big in the gaming industry that it would be inconceivable for somebody to knock them completely out. I don't mean, right. you know, completely possible that that on any given generation, Nintendo might somewhat outsell them or whatever, but no one's going to knock Sony out anymore. But they right. could have in the, in the fifth generation. That's when Sony was the newcomer and they could right. have been an Ulsoran. But they, they played their cards brilliantly. And I would argue that uh, Sega obviously had their own sort of self-inflicted wounds, but Nintendo to an extent did too. Um, not nearly as catastrophic as Sega, but Nintendo did as well. And so... And so out of that, you know, sort of rubble came out this giant beast uh, named Sony. And now they are this juggernaut that's more or less unstoppable. So, yeah, consequential sort of outcome from the fifth generation was the rise of Sony. They're like synonymous with video games to an extent. And, you know, just the, the shift of the video game industry to a much more controlled yep. uh, standards, you know, uh, a much larger industry larger projects, much more oversight, and a lot less gets through, you know, in terms, at least in terms of what the big publishers will put out, you know, and um, you do get a lot of homogenized gaming experiences. Uh, You get a lot of repeat stuff and you get a lot of stuff that kind of errs on the, on the side of safety, you know, Uh, rather than creativity with a few exceptions. Of course, there's always a few exceptions. Um, of course, you get large uh, directors, you know, who are given more credence because they've proven themselves, you know, so they're able to kind of like run free stuff like Shadow of the Colossus, that kind of, you know, and, and the later games that they put out, you know, and you, you have, uh, you know, companies like Quantic Dream making games, you know, like Heavy Rain or what, and you you get artistic stuff to an extent. But again, most of the bigger stuff is a little on the safe side. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the exceptions or the outliers are really going to be, you know, if you want, if you want creativity, you're going to look more to like the indie of course. scene, you know, which is supported on, on a lot of the larger consoles, which is a good thing, you know, so you at least get indie developers able to publish games and, you know, continue to publish great games, you know, as long as, as long as they can sell enough, you know, they can make a living, you know, yeah. they can continue to do it. But, um, you know, we didn't really even talk that much about, and, and we're running up on times. So we don't really have time, but we didn't really talk that much about Neo Geo CD yeah. or, um, you know, 3DO even that much or Atari Jaguar. I mean, it was very clear, very quickly and early on that they just weren't going to <laughs> come out on top. You know, uh, once once you actually started seeing their competition, you know, what, what they could do versus what they said they could do in ads, you know, and then what the other uh, players were actually doing. You know, when you'd walk into a game store and pick up a controller, uh, you'd quickly see the difference, you know. Um, But yeah, these, you know, so during this time, it was crazy. There were so many different players on the field. And at one time, you literally had uh, 32X, you had Philips CDI, you had Neo Geo CD, you had uh, 3DO, Mm -hmm. Atari Jaguar, (laughs) <laughs> Sega Saturn, Nintendo 64, PlayStation. Uh, it's ridiculous, right? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and obviously all of these can't possibly compete and exist you know, harmoniously on the same market. You know, <laughs> there's just not enough interest or dollars to go around. So yeah. it really was like a land rush or or I guess you could say a games rush to, to kind of see who was going to come out. And um, yeah, it was an exciting time to be a, a video game fan. Um, and and had I been an adult, I might look back on it a little differently, or maybe I'd have had more, 
awareness of everything that was going on like I do nowadays. Um, but again, you know, I have very specific memories based on the fact that I was like a young teen during that time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it was a good time to be a gamer. Like despite the fact that there was so few rules and that it, you know, you really had to take a chance on this, that, or the other, it was exciting. It was fun. You know, it's a, it's a time that I look back at very fondly. Um, I'm obviously glad I picked the Saturn as my horse. I love it yeah. to this day tremendously. Um, but I did mm-hmm. also at the time own a PlayStation and a Nintendo 64, and I did have good experiences on those consoles as well. So, you know, not to take away from their contributions or even the contributions of the smaller players that bowed out fairly quickly. So it was exciting. Absolutely. It was fun. And it was, it's a, it was a paradigm that I think, you know, coupled with the arcade scene and the lack of an internet for folks mm-hmm. in internet communities, I think it's a time that can never come again. And so, you know, it was very special to live through that for sure. Absolutely. And I too, like, I do love all three systems. I, and, um, I've made a lot of jokes in the past about N64 because arguably there, there are less games that I'm interested in on that console than, uh, like say on Saturn or PlayStation, but still like there's several handfuls of good games on the Nintendo 64 that I will go back to, you know, um, it's just, and I love the PlayStation too. It's just as content creators and stuff, we really only have enough time to really focus heavily on Mm -hmm. one machine. And of course that's going to be the one that I've love heart and soul. And that's the Saturn, you know, but I do really, uh, love and appreciate the PlayStation. It is a quite a great machine with lots of good software on it for sure. You know, yeah. You might even argue there's more good games on the PlayStation. I don't know because it had so many games. You know that if you like did a side by side comparison of good games, you might find more software on the PlayStation. That I don't care. You know, the Saturn is still my number one. You know for sure. Um, and it's mm-hmm. just because of the kind of games that it has and the character of the games that it has. Uh, it's a very specific style of gaming and and i guess that makes us the weird ones right <laughs> because we're definitely the outliers you know uh yeah, yeah definitely true. oh you're no doubt in a room full of people you're going to get more hands up uh that they have more nostalgia for the playstation <laughs> than the saturn there's just you know oh, yeah. we have to band together because there's not as many of us but we do exist <laughs> we do exist and we continue to uh enjoy the saturn to this day and absolutely uh, you know and at least for me um, it was, it continues to be my favorite system, of course, and mm-hmm. zero regrets, you know, zero regrets. And I, I wholeheartedly recommend, uh, folks, if you want to get a, a good picture of, you know, what it was like, uh, in the game industry back then, check out next generation magazine. Mm-hmm. Honestly, uh, you could also do well to, to look at some game fan issues, you know, from definitely from a more consumer and, you know, gamer perspective, but also, you know, next Gen- next generation just did a really good job of kind of showing the different movements, the uh, the, the plays as they were happening, you know, and uh, interviewing, uh, you know, different developers and interviewing publishers and CEOs, and you know, you get to hear these these CEOs talk about how hopeful they are, and oh yeah, we're gonna pull through. It's gonna be totally fine. And then by the next year, or by you know the yeah. next few issues, it's like okay, yeah, they're completely dead in the water. So, I mean, I really recommend, I believe there is an archive on Internet Archive or Out of Print Archive, you know, of uh, Next Generation Magazine. And it's definitely a go-to for game history, you know, because it just, at the time, did such a good job of representing 
all of the movements that were going on in in the games industry. Yeah, I I'll second that. What a great great uh, snapshot of the era. Definitely, that magazine did a good job because they were. And if you're in the UK, it would be Edge, Edge. I believe. you would look at not, not completely the same magazine, but they used a lot of the same, they share a lot of the same articles and, and features and stuff like that. And so it would be a, a good one to look at if you're in, in the UK or in Europe is edge magazine. But yeah. Yeah. I think that's about it for us though, for, for today, you know, we got to wrap it up, but uh, um, anything else you want to just say about the fifth generation before we close? Oh, you know what? Nothing that we haven't already said other than, again, this was such a magical time to live through. And it's something that it all kind of came about during, uh, due to circumstance and it could never sort of happen again. So I'm just really glad to have lived through it as a teen mm-hmm. and experienced it firsthand because it really was. It was really fantastic. Right. Like uh, like the Great Depression or something like that. You know, it's a period in history that, you know, okay, that might be a little melodramatic. But it's it's definitely a period in gaming history that is, uh, it was wild, you know? And it, and like you said, it, I, it, I don't think it'll ever happen again. Not like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, just because of all the extenuating circumstances. But, but yeah, so until next time, this is Saturn Dave and Peter reminding you to play your Sega Saturns. And uh, or your other fifth generation consoles of choice. <laughs> it's okay. Just don't don't play them too much. You know, play the Saturn Saturn's, more. Right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. You, you, you have to play the Sega Saturn. We're not going to force you to play any of those other games, but we'll, we'll definitely come to your house and break your legs if you don't play the Saturn. But uh, <laughs> until next time, <laughs> this is Saturn Dave and Peter signing out.